Welcome to Iron Sights. This podcast candidly seeks to create opportunities and deliver impact by sharing the experiences and wisdom of successful entrepreneurs and thought leaders who unapologetically aim to win in health, fitness, business, and life. I'm your host, Scott Howell. Welcome to Old School Meets New School. Tradition meets innovation and imperfection meets excellence. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. In this episode, my guest is Rick Field, who spent the majority of his career in California's most violent and notorious prisons. He has a very interesting background, uh, and he's going to share with us several things and insights. Uh, specifically, he's going to shed light on basically what we might consider the redheaded stepchildren of our law enforcement officers here in the state of California, that being those that work in the Department of Corrections. People get locked up put away, put in prison, and then we get to forget about them. But somebody has to look after these people. Now, Rick's dedicated himself to uh, creating and implementing programs that help both the officers and the families deal with the challenges I just mentioned. This was an important episode for me because I'm passionate about making sure that our first responders, members of LEO, military, and uh, otherwise, get the mental, physical, and emotional support they need in order to continue to do their jobs at the highest level to keep themselves safe, as well as the public they are uh, charged with protecting and serving. As a reminder, all of these Iron Sights episodes are sponsored by Red Dot Fitness training programs and products. If you'd like to find out more about Red Dot Fitness programs, please visit rdftrainonline.com. That's rdftrainonline.com. Welcome back to the Iron Sights Podcast. I'm in the studio today with a uh, very interesting meetup. Guy's name is Rick Field. Rick, welcome to the show. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate you having me here. I appreciate you making the drive over. Uh, it's been a it's been a little bit of a journey for you to get here today. You made it in. I think there's some really important shit we should be talking about, and uh, you are uh, sort of a subject matter expert on some of those things. Uh, and we're going to get into that. You have an interesting background uh, in. Uh, medicine, uh, you know, there's a military career there, there's a medical career there, and then there's a law enforcement career there. And a lot of time spent in the department of corrections here in the state of California. But before you do that, dude, I want to know what are you doing in the gym every day? Cause you, <laughs> uh, and, I mean, how old are you, man? I'm 52. Yeah. You look like if I, I hope to look as good as this dude at 52. Uh, well, if you keep, you keep on that trajectory, you're, you're doing good yourself. Bro. Yeah, man. You're yeah. taking care of yourself. I mean, and I think it's a good opportunity to kind of talk about how we got connected. And that was through Dr. Robert Floyd, who has been in the studio and talked about um, basically longevity and figuring out how to do what you're doing on a daily basis now to take care of yourself. What, Let's talk about it, man. How, how many days a week you working out? Like, what are you eating? What are you putting in your body? Well, six days a week. And uh, it's it's uh, been since I was about 14 years old. So it's really been a passion of mine for a long time. And it's one of those things, as you know, obviously, you know, that uh, when you get out of the gym for too long, man, it's hard to get back mm -hmm. and uh, you get too far out of shape. So, I've, you know, I've always been on the cusp of, you know, being in shape. I don't consider myself to be in shape right now, but uh, I'm doing not like I said, I'm not doing too bad for 52 um, yeah. So diet wise, uh, I've met Rob Floyd. I was doing a, a presentation. We'll talk about uh, mm -hmm. my organization in a minute, but I was doing a presentation over in Monterey and Rob's dad was there. He sells uh, some insurance and uh, he saw my presentation and uh, my presentation is about stress mitigation, um, employee wellness, officer wellness in the LE world. And, uh, he reached out to his son, uh, Rob, and, and told Rob about me and he says, hey, you're kind of missing a piece. And, and Rob does a um, it's a lifestyle. It's, it's not a diet. It's a lifestyle. And he does 
because he promotes paleo, healthy living, uh, longevity. The guy's passionate about helping mm -hmm. people live better lives, live longer lives. And uh, I'm doing the same thing, but in a different way where he's doing it nutritionally. I'm doing it in stress mitigation. And the two kind of go together. Uh, if you think about diet and hormones and, and hormone regulation and uh, just health in general, you know, uh, the more unhealthy you are diet wise and, and physically, uh, the more difficulty you have dealing with stress and uh, longevity becomes a problem. Uh, chronic disease sets in and those types of things. So um, I hooked up with Rob. We started talking about what he does and what I do. And uh, we found that there's, you know, a, um, a mutual philosophy and that uh, by working together, the two of us to a certain degree that we would complement one another. So, and I saw Rob's podcast when he came in and uh, was talking with you. The guy's so passionate and Very. he knows a ton of stuff and I'm going to give him a shout out. Uh, Leaky Gut Solutions, mm -hmm. that's that's his uh, program. Uh, he's doing great things. He's out of uh, Reno, uh, Nevada. Great dude. Yeah, but so, you don't have to live in Reno to take advantage of uh, no, Dr. Rob. You no. don't. Like he's, he's, uh, he's, he's available online, which is, which is his thing now because he wanted to Im impact more people. Uh, irrespective of where he was in the world. So that is, yep, Leaky Gut Solutions. So, and one thing, and uh, just to promote his program a little bit more, you know, relative to um, the outcomes that I had, because I did his program um, and it's uh, 12 weeks and it was amazing. Um, I went from 230 pounds down about 212. And uh, at the time I was uh, somewhere probably close to 10, 11% body fat. I didn't lose any strength. I really didn't lose any size, even though I was losing weight. Mm -hmm. uh, my my, uh, my muscularity, my, my vascularity, I was doing better. And I, I used to, uh, I try to go, go out and golf and my hands would swell, my joints would swell. And uh, what I found was the uh, inflammation markers in my system actually reduced significantly and my kidney function increased. And I have a rejuvenation doctor as well. I'll give him a, a plug, Dr. Diego Allende out of uh, Fresno, California. Okay. He's my rejuvenation doc. Mm -hmm. And I go to him for hormones, testosterone, and those types of things for longevity. Takes and a team approach sometimes. Oh, it sure does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't do it on your own. And one way or another, as you get older, and I can speak specifically, you know, from the male's perspective, as you know, you start to reach 40 and you get north of 40, things change. They're just different. And to think that you're going to do it all by yourself or there's a one size fits all, uh, you're going to find out real quick. Uh, if you've lived a life where you've constantly challenged yourself, whether that be through exercise, diet, prof your profession, whatever it happens to be, things are going to catch up. And so I'm, it's not shameful at all to be plugging these people because more people out there need to know about people like, uh, Dr. Floyd. And I'm sorry, one more time was his uh, name? Diego Allende. Yeah. He's and yeah. Rejuvenation specialist. He really knows the stuff when it comes to hormones and those types of things. So it, it, it again, kind of finding this balance. My understanding is, is there was a time in your life where you weren't as quite as balanced and may have had some health issues that, that maybe, I, I don't know, maybe kind of redirected how you had to approach things a little bit. Can you talk about that? Sure. So always been a gym rat. And, uh, probably the biggest I've ever been was 260, 265 pounds. Dude, that's, a, that's a lot of beef. Dude. It's a lot of beef, you know, 20 inch arms, uh, just a, a big guy. And, uh, coming up in the law enforcement world, did 27 years with the department of corrections and, uh, uh started the department of corrections in a, in kind of a, a, uh, it was, it wasn't kind of, it was a nursing and a peace officer position. It was a, um, MTA uh, position is what they called it. So you had a badge, you were a sworn peace officer, but you were also from in, in my situation, I was a licensed vocational nurse. So, um, I was trying to, you know, be healthy, but over the, the period of time 
Um, such a stressful job. And we'll, I'm, we're going to get deep into that. We'll deep dive into that. Um, the difficulties the, over the years kept building up. And even though I was in the gym and I was trying to be healthy and I was pushing heavy weights and I was doing, you know, all this stuff, a SWAT medic. And then uh, at one point I, I was no longer a SWAT medic, became an entry guy as an operator on, on the SWAT team. Our own the, these are stressful fucking jobs. Stressful jobs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then I ran the investigation unit over at Corcoran State Prison for a little while. So, yeah, stress on top of stress on top of stress. And um, what was happening and I was ignoring it was that uh my blood pressure was, was creeping up. Um, in my thirties, I had high blood pressure, but I was always telling myself I'm healthy. I don't need to take blood pressure pills. I don't need to manage that. You know, I'll manage it through working out. But as you know, uh, the more weights that you lift, it actually causes hypertension Man. because mm -hmm. of the pressure that you put on your body and mm -hmm. your head and your, your, you know, your system. So over years of untreated hypertension and, um, a diet that was, um, grossly, uh, overdone on the protein, uh, you know, we kind of came up in the same era. I'm a little bit older than you, but it was that uh, two grams of protein per um, pound of body weight, <laughs> right, right. you know, and I'm pushing 300 grams of protein down my pie hole every day. It's a lot, man. It's, it's a lot. hard on the guts. It, well, not only that, it's hard on the kidneys. Yeah, it can be. Yeah. 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 So, um, over time, my, my system, uh, had a difficulty in not treating the hypertension. So I wound up, uh, having a stroke, a small stroke at 43. Um, the stroke was in my hypothalamus. Um, and, uh, there's some people that would argue out there that, uh, I wasn't using a significant portion of my brain anyway, so it really didn't matter, but, um, Easy, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, that was kind of a, 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 a call, you know, an awakening mm -hmm. for me and, uh, to, um, start treating my hypertension. And it wasn't, uh, shortly after that, that I was diagnosed with, um, kidney failure. Yeah. So that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So you got, you, now you're on this, this place where you have to probably be readdressing whether you want to or not. Like, and I was saying this before, yeah. like if you're not, if you're not paying attention, it's going to creep up on you one way or another. And you're going to have to make some adjustments. There's going to have to be, you're going to be forced to do it in maybe a way that means doubling down on the work that it takes to actually get better rather than starting this early. So can you maybe talk about that? Sure. hundred percent. Yeah. So, um, when I was told that if, if, and I was in um, stage two and uh, stage three, you know, when you, between stage three and four is when dialysis hits and all that kind of stuff. And um, so that I, I knew that I really had to get a hold of it. And my rejuvenation doc was like, you got to stop the protein. You got to, you know, he was like 150 grams of protein is really all you need in your diet. Um, but if you don't do something soon, you're, you're going to be in a bad way. And, uh, At your particular situation. Yeah. In my situation. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I knew that I had to start dieting and that this is before I met Rob and, and got involved in his program long before. So I was trying to do it on my own. And just like everything else in, in my life, I've always been like, I can handle this. You're going to power through it. I got to right? power through it. Yeah. You know, I could fix myself and we'll talk about that you know, a little bit later, there's a lot of things I couldn't fix in my life. And, uh, that was one of them. So I, I, I didn't really get worse and my kidneys would kind of function up, uh, fluctuate up and down. So I would, you know, be on the cusp of stage three and then I'll go back to stage two. And, um, all of it was my, uh, my EGFR, my glomer glomerular filtration rates. And, uh, I was trying to drink a lot of, a lot of water mm -hmm. and, um, trying to lay off the protein, but, uh, it just, it wasn't enough. 
So I had to uh, drop some weight. I had to really start looking at, at what a healthier lifestyle looks. And a lot mm-hmm. of it was the stress because even though I was on these uh, blood pressure pills, it was not unusual for me to be up around my blood pressure um, 190 over 120. Holy shit. Yeah. And that was on blood pressure pills. Wow. Yeah. So imagine how old? I was, well, 43, 44, yeah, You're still a young man. 46. Yeah. 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 Wow. And then um, the second uh, shockwave hit at 48 when I had a small heart attack in the back of my heart. And now, now it's knocking. Yeah. Now, now, <laughs> yeah. I mean, how many lives does the cat have oh, right, at this point? Right? Yeah. And then, you know, there was some alcohol abuse, you know, not heavy, but, and when I say alcohol abuse in, in the law enforcement world, um, because of the stress levels and because of the hypervigilance and the adrenaline levels and the cortisol levels and all that stuff. And this is stuff I've all studied after the fact because it impacted me so heavily is that um, when you get home after, you know, 8, 10, 16 hours of working inside of a prison, um, going to sleep is not a thing. Yeah, you you don't just roll over and put your head on a pillow and crash out. Forget about the day. You don't. You know, you replay a lot of stuff in your brain. Um, And and then, you know, you have the home life that you got to try to balance as well. So there's um, impact there. Uh, so, you know, to have a couple of bourbons or, you know, something, uh, as you try to wind down and a lot of times you, you sit on the couch and you, you watch TV and you try to veg and, and, uh, uh, but that's, it's just not enough, unfortunately. So you, you try to get that buzz so you can, you know, start to Take feel sleepy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, on top of the buzz, you, you throw a little bit of melatonin in there or, you know, some Tylenol PM. So you you can get some type of sleep because even though you're not getting quality sleep, some type of sleep is better than no Done. sleep at all. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, ultimately it, it was leading up to um, my health issues. So, and I will say that uh, Dr. Robert Floyd's program um, helped in every aspect. My kidney function is actually better. I just saw Dr. Diego Allende a few weeks ago and uh, my, my latest lab results, the guy draws 15 vials of blood every three, three months. months. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, my, I've got the, the best kidney function right now that I've had in, in years. So shout out to Dr. Robert Floyd for, you know, helping that happen. Working, so, right? Working. Again, again, yeah. it's, it's, it's combining the brains and the minds that want to help people get better rather than prolong a process by throwing a pill or whatever at it. They yeah. check back with me in three months. No, let's find a solution to the problem. Right. 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 Um, and it's never too late to do that. But the longer you go, the harder it gets. And we're all on the clock. Let's be honest. Right. And you've already alluded now to some of you, you know, the things that you've done, you did is in, in your career. And there's some really hard statistics to have to really face and, and look at with regard to lifespans of anybody involved in LA, any first responder for that matter, but right. particularly um, in the, in the system that you worked in, you're already, your, your longevity, your lifespan is already reduced, but going back to the stresses and the, or in order to just the inherent risks that exist on the job. Yeah. So getting your arms around this stuff early is really important so that you're not in this situation. Now, had you not been in the kind of shape or the kind of, kind of condition you were in or been taking physically taking care of yourself or just been that guy that can power through things that knows how to hunker down and, and do the work who knows where, where you'd be right now. Well, that, and uh, I worked the majority of my career, I worked in high security prisons. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So um, between Corcoran, Sadif, Kern Valley, um, 
you know, those are very stressful jobs. These are nasty places, nasty, nasty places. And, uh, about two years out from retirement, uh, here I am traveling up and down California doing presentations on stress mitigation and taking care of yourself and, um, those types of things, self-care. And I wasn't practicing self-care myself. I was working in high security prisons and it was kind of an ego thing going, yeah, you know, that's right. I work in, in, in the worst prisons in, in the United States. And, um, but that's where my brothers and sisters were. And right. that's where I felt most comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all cops, you know, all corrections officers are, are ass kicking people, you know, um, I don't mean that, you know, no, literally. No, I get you. But they, 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 they want to be where the shit is and they yeah. want to be there to back up their brothers and sisters. As absolutely. You said. Absolutely. Right. And when you when you have that bond and that camaraderie, that's that's where you kind of want to be. You, you know, it uh, it feeds into a um, a uh, a part of your life and becomes a lifestyle. And when you recognize that, you know, it's not really working out for self-care because, you know, if I keep going on the same trajectory, if things don't change, then uh, I may not have a future. Um, my last two years, I was like, I, I got to get out of high security. So um, I called up a uh, friend of mine that I came up in the department with. She was a warden or is a warden over at another prison. And uh, I said, hey, I, and it's a lower security prison. Stuff still happens there, you know, but uh, not to the level like Kern Valley and Corcoran and, and that type of thing. So I reached out to her and I said, I, I to survive at this point, you know, to make it to retirement, I need to power down. I need to step out of some hypervigilance and, and, you know, mitigate my stress level. And I said, I'd like to come work at the prison. And uh, she was um, gracious enough to say, I'd love to have you. So wound up doing my last two years at a prison that was um, not a uh, such so violent and, and uh, so um, so demanding. Um, I, I got some questions, man. If we yeah. can kind of circle back for a second. So you mentioned, you know, the law enforcement community, kind of where you fit in, the fact that you wanted to be there to, to, to help serve and protect first your family, your LA family, and then the people around them that you're, you're, I guess, charged with, with, uh, with, with protecting inside the prison system, that being inmates or whatever, but that kind of that, uh, that drawing in towards, um, wanting to be involved in, in the heat, right. And kind of wanting to be up front. And yeah. you mentioned being a SWAT medic and then being on a, uh, an entry team. I think you mentioned, is that what the term was? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. An entry team. Where did that start for you? I mean, was this something that was kind of already in you? Like, you know, like a- it was kind of, it's a weird thing because, uh, you know, when I was growing up, I was an athlete and, uh, you know, played a lot of different sports and, you know, kind of that alpha type mentality. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I've, I've told people this, you know, it's, you go back and you do some self-evaluation and some self-reflection and, and you look back at, at things you did and you go, why did I do that? You know, and uh, what I've and not only that, but before I got into the the wellness arena, when I started to look at how I was treating people, you know, as a supervisor, as a manager and then as a prison administrator, you know, I found that I wasn't doing the best job of, uh, you know, treating people the way that they mm-hmm. deserve to be treated. So that, that took some self-reflection. And, and when I really looked hard at it, you know, I, I spent a lot of years being, um, you know, overly alpha. And there's a lot of people that can probably connect relate, with that, yeah. you know, relate to that. 
you know, it's like, I, I want to be the, um, you know, the, the predator, you know, not, not in a predator sense, but in, in a, you don't want to be the prey. Let's put it that way. Right. Yeah. So you got to be top of the food chain. Yeah. And I wanted to be top of the food chain always. And, uh, but when I look back and, and I, I see the stress that that caused on a lot of people, I, I there's things that I wish I would have done differently when I was younger. And, um, but I was always wanting to push and, and some of it is that, you know, adrenaline, you, you know, you, when you work in the LA world, when you work in the, the prison life, um, all my LA brothers and sisters on whether you're a street cop. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard this before, man. Yeah. 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 You, uh, you, you get an appetite for, um, adrenaline and for, uh, high risk behavior, you know, and, and for wanting to do, you know, hardcore things. And so the, the team that I was on in corrections, uh, back in the day, it was called special emergency response team. Now it's called crisis response team, CRT. Um, but it was the, the, the cream to the cream of, you know, the correctional setting, as far as operations and like a, uh, an operator would be concerned, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, special ops or tact ops or, you know, that type of thing is what we did. Uh, we studied room entry and, uh, we were, um, our, our primary, uh, function was uh, hostage rescue. So if there was ever a hostage situation that jumped off in the prison, there has been, you know, since the inception of the CERT team, these things have actually happened and they activated, you know, the team to go in and deal with the hostage situation. And, uh, but that's where the, that's where the team uh, originated from. And, and really, when you look at historically where that operational team came from, Attica State Prison, yep. when, when they had- 70s? Yeah, it was in the 70s yeah. in New York. Yeah. When they had that, uh, the prison takeover, the inmates took over. Went days. Yeah, it went weeks. Weeks. Yeah, weeks. It went weeks. Four, yep. four weeks or three and a half weeks, something like that. Yeah. Right. And the inmates wound up uh, switching clothing with the uh, corrections officers. And uh, back then they were called guards, but now we're corrections officers. Yeah. And they brought in the National Guard to deal with the situation. And the National Guard, you know, they they had uh, um, rifles and they, they lined uh, the prison walls um, and uh, unfortunately, completely unprepared, completely like, unprepared. Yeah. And they didn't know who was who in the environment and what the environment looked like. Half of those people, probably the majority never had seen a prison, been to a prison, but this was the force that they were using to take back over the prison. And what wound up happening was, um, they shot and killed several, um, tragedies, correctional yeah. officers because the correctional officers had the inmate uh, attire yeah. on and vice versa. So, uh, out of that was born a, a um, different philosophy of, uh, we need to have some people on the inside that can handle these types of um, difficult situations without, uh, a potential loss of life. So does each, so you mentioned like Kern Valley, Corcoran, does each prison have one of these teams in there? Or is it like, there's a response team that would like for the state that would go in if something bad went down? Like, so, cause I, I think when, when I look at this, like sort of from a, um, from maybe from a military organization perspective, mm-hmm. there are, there are soft guys. And then there's the special forces guys, you know, kind of the special teams groups that, that kind of do their own things. And then there's dev grew and there's all this kind of stuff, right. Depending on the job, we call these guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it set up that way? You know, back in the day when I first got on and I got on in 96 and um, it was set up where every prison had its own team. Got it. And the, the reason why is because who knows that, team who knows that prison better than that team. And when you weren't doing, you know, special operations type stuff, you were just working the line. So you got to know the prison, you knew, you know, the nooks and the crannies. And if you were an operator on that team, then you, 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 you were always evaluating, you know, tactics and operational needs mm-hmm. and that type of thing in your own environment. And uh, to save money over time as the state does, you know, they look at, uh, uh, 
making things different. And so they went to regional teams where they'd have in some cases two or maybe Got some it. three. And I think there's might even be a, a, a regional team out there that has a responsibility for four prisons. Wow. And they're, yeah, but they're made up of um, officers, sergeants, lieutenants. And in, in one case, I, I was actually a captain when I was uh, on the Corcoran team and I would, that was as a uh, sniper team squad leader. But when, uh, when they start taking you know, the people from those prisons to incorporate them into a team, you still have operators that know those prisons very well. Gotcha. Yeah. So somebody's kind of the leadership and within that group, like this is my spot so I can give more direction. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Kind of like that, but you know, or at least the go-to person, you know, should there be an operation that jumps up at an institution, obviously the, the guy or the girl, cause there's, you, there's women on the team too. Um, you, you would be called upon, uh, if, you know, they were making a op plan and, uh, to, you know, try to coordinate that and work with it because you have the most knowledge of that institution. This is interesting to me. And I bet it is to a lot of other people that really have no idea what goes on inside a prison, you know, and, uh, ones like what you just mentioned, which are some of the most dangerous and the some of the most hardened worst criminals in the United States are housed, not in their backyard. Right. They're in far off places. I just crossed over the over the weekend. I just crossed over the border from um, from Oregon into California up on the on the coastline. And I've heard this name. I heard the name of this prison a million times. Pelican Bay. Pelican Bay. Yeah. And I was just shocked. Like all these all the times I'd heard about it. I never actually knew where it was located. Like I knew about San Quentin because it's fairly local, you know, regional to us up there. there above uh, San Francisco up there. But I, I didn't know where this was. And it, it, I don't know. It was just, it was kind of a, it was shocking and it was unnerving for me that I didn't know where it was. Mm -hmm. Like I literally just drove right past it. You can see it from the roadway nearly. Absolutely. It's right there. I mean, especially at night with the, the uh, high bat, high, uh, high mass lights. Yeah. I mean, they light up things. (laughs) I mean, that is a ton of light that comes off of a prison. So, I mean, I guess if you live around there and I remember actually taking a trip out to Wasco County when I was in college and visited, uh, one of the big cotton, mills out there, which is like right across the street from JG Boswell. Exactly. Boswell. Mm -hmm. And then the residents that live literally right across the street. When I say right across the street, it just looks like it's a neighborhood street, right? There's houses on one side, there's a street, then there may be a little strip of lawn. I don't remember if that's the case. And then there's a big gray wall. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side of that wall are some of the the most, some of the most evil people that have ever run the streets are, are in that wall. And then you're charged with going in there and making sure that they stay there, that they don't kill one another. They don't kill an officer. They don't perpetrate other crimes that are obviously can go on inside there. And I guess my point is, is while I was unnerved that I didn't exactly know where Pelican Bay was, I'm more unnerved that more of the citizens of the United States, particularly in, in California, cause I'm a, I'm a native here. They don't understand what really happens inside the, the, these prisons. And, you know, we, we arrest criminals and we put them behind bars. And then after that, we don't, we forget about it. We forget about it. You know, we read in the headlines how heinous the crime was. And, uh, you know, um, like the, the, the guy down from uh, Bakersfield that uh, took the, the little girl off the streets, you know, I think she was 17, 18 years old. And um, I, I read the case file at the time and, and uh, I can't remember all the particulars, but, um, you know, he took her to a seedy hotel and, and uh, he uh, killed her and uh, drove a landscape spike through her neck, um, put her on all fours and uh, did bad things to her for a couple of days after she was dead. And while he was doing that, you know, stabbing her with pruning shears and those types of things. Unbelievable. Yeah. And, and this is the type of guy, you know, that comes into the prison. And obviously that's, you know, um, when, when you, when you read the story, 
uh, or you get a news feed on your phone. You're like, oh, wow, that, that guy, you know, oh, my gosh, people like that exist in life. And by the way, he later on killed somebody uh, inside uh, the prison as well and did really bad things to, to the person that he killed. And I don't want to get too much into that because it's very um very gruesome. But uh, yeah, so, you know, we're dealing with these types of people. You know, I take my brothers and sisters down at Kern Valley and uh, three quarters of the population at Kern Valley, the MA population are doing life or extremely long terms. And they just, they don't have a lot to lose. Um, they don't understand um, that, that, uh, that they could do better even in the prison setting. A lot of them are uh, involved in gangs. It's very, very difficult for these people to do what we say, do their own time. Uh, usually you have to become affiliated. Once you go into a prison, that's mm -hmm. how you survive. And that affiliation requires you to do certain things. And um, these are not good things. They're not good things. No, these are not community service oriented things. No. <laughs> and it's not unusual for, you know, somebody to go in and doing a, uh, you know, 10 year uh, prison sentence and wind up, you know, staying in prison their whole life because of additional uh, uh, things they've done, offenses that they've done inside prison offenses, you know, and these are the types of things, these type of people that we're dealing with. So, yeah, I've seen some, some very horrific things inside of prisons. I've seen cops, you know, be attacked. Um, I had a guy in, in, uh, you know, early on in my career, try to stab me and uh, we we're doing a cell extraction and the SWAT team got activated uh, because one of the uh, officers um, doing cell extractions before the SWAT team got activated. And we knew that these guys had weapons uh, because we found um, uh, metal missing inside the cells on, mm. on the desk areas, you know, it's stainless steel and they cut it out. It's crazy how they cut metal with, you it's, know, it's things inter like it's interesting what you were powder. saying. Yeah. yeah. The, it was interesting. You were saying going back to Attica real quick yeah. and that, you know, they're switching swapping of the uniforms mm -hmm. and people think, Oh, these are dumb people that are behind prison. When the reality of it is, is while they may be maniacal and evil and some level, there's some level of brilliance in what they do. So going back, I mean, they're, they're yeah. finding ways to survive and not only survive, perpetrate additional crimes. So they're cutting up desks, whatever they can get their hands on. Right. Yeah. I, I've seen videos. They've done videos of, of guys that uh, were weapons making experts and, and they've actually, some of these guys have actually uh, been willing to go on video and usually it's the investigative services unit that'll go in and, and, you know, film these types of things happening, but, uh, they'll make weapons, plastic weapons out of styrofoam cups or plastic, um, uh, bottles that they have, you know, that shampoo, you know, or those types of things. Mean, they, some of these guys are, are, you know, very, very intelligent. And by the way, some of the best artists that I've ever seen in my life are in prison. Behind bars. Yeah. And whether they're, it's tattoo artists and you're not supposed to tattoo in prison, but it happens or, you know, just drawings or those. I mean, there is some talented people in prison. They just chose to uh, not utilize those talents in the best of ways and, and, you know, commit crimes. But well, yeah. I, I cut you off there. Sorry. Just to, with regard to the, <laughs> the creativeness and you, somebody trying to stab you, what happened? Yeah. So they activated SWAT team to go in and remove the, uh, the weapons out of these cells. And these guys had, um, barricaded their cell doors and, uh, they, they knew we were coming for them. Uh, the line staff had been doing cell extractions previously. And then, uh, once that officer got stabbed in the leg, they pulled all the line staff out, activated the special emergency response team. And we went in and did, I think it was somewhere around 16, 17 hours of cell extractions. How many cell extractions is that? Uh, you know, we did, uh, God, it's been so long. They called it March Madness. There was, it happened in March, obviously. There were so many cell extractions that night and so it was off the hook. 
um, but they called it March Madness. So on uh, the very first, it was the first or the second cell that I was going into. Um, we had Arizona doors, which are um, doors where holes have been drilled in and perforated doors. Okay. Right. And these guys had taken a mattress and they tied the mattress through the holes so that they could barricade the door. So when we tried to open the door electronically or try to pop it open, it wouldn't move. Mm-hmm. Right. So we had to put a come along on the door. And as we were using the come along to open the door, we had the, the door open about four inches. And the first guy in, um, he's a shield man and um, he's going to have contact with the first inmate. And then I'm the second guy in. And so I had my head hunched down behind the shield man and I felt tap, tap, tap on the back of my head. It was actually a little harder than a tap. And I thought it was the guy behind me smacking me in the back of the head, you know, get me fired up to go inside the cell. And I'm like, Hey, I'm like, I'm like, quit hitting me. The door's not open. I'm not hitting you. And I'm like, okay, somebody's hitting me. And it wasn't until the door popped and that mattress fell off. Um, the first inmate jumped off the top bunk onto the shield man. And, and from there it was a fight between those two. And the second guy came in and he, he rushed forward, made contact with me. I was a pretty big kid back then. I ran him up against the back of the cell, landed on top of him. And when I did, um, his right hand fell to the side. And what I saw was a knife that had been tethered to his hand. So he, if he lost control of the knife, he would be able to pull it right back to his hand and gain control of the knife again. And uh, so I told him, I said, you touch the knife or you reach for the knife right. and and. I'm going to break your fucking arm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. um, that was the second cell. And then when we went back and watched the videos after the fact, it was then that we realized that that was the guy. He had the knife in his hand and he was coming outside that four inch door opening and he was smacking me in the back of the head with a knife. Uh, But because I had a, a riot helmet on and I had all my gear on, it didn't penetrate. Um, he wound wow. up being charged with attempted murder uh, on a peace officer. wound up getting additional seven years, but um you know, so that was this was the second door of the that day. was the second door. So needless to say, um, my adrenaline was off the hook. And, and like I said, I didn't realize until we went back and watched the video of what exactly was happening. But I knew he had a knife and I knew that he was the guy that I was had contact with. And that's that, close. That I, yeah, it's, it's close. Exactly. That's really close. I, I'm just tr- wrapping my head around this whole thing that you're basically for people that don't know what a come along is. Think of like it's a human powered winch. Yes. Effectively. And you're cranking this thing to create space so that you can get in in the door. I mean, this must be feel like an eternity, dude. Like, oh, it by must the be way, like slow motion, like just. Oh, you, right? yeah. By the way, they're throwing piss and shit through the door yeah, on so, top of you. That's where I was going with yeah, this. Like, yeah. so it's not just like they're not <laughs> no, waiting for you. No, they're not but, waiting. They, in fact, they soaped up the cell floor. They put uh, shampoo and soap on the cell floor. So when you go in, you slip and fall, then they jump on top of you. And then, you know, if they have weapons, they'll try to stab you or, you know, try to beat you down, that type of thing. Um, and by the way, there's, you know, 200 sets of eyes that are watching this whole thing going because all the other inmates are at their cell doors. Watching in Harlem. Yeah. Watching all this stuff. And learning. Out. Oh, absolutely. Because, you you know, one of those cells is the next cell we're going into. Right. And we're throwing flashbangs, you know, out. We're lighting off flashbangs out on the um, outside of the building to try to draw attention to the back of the cell just momentarily so we can pop the cell door open and get in there and handle business. But the flashbangs weren't working. You know, Uh, we had a lot of tools that we couldn't use because it was inside. You know, um, we we threw uh, gases in there, um, tear gas, CN, you mm-hmm. know, that type of thing. Sure. CN has very little effect. Um, pepper spray has, has very little effect when these guys have shirts wrapped around their faces, and their eyes and, prepared. They, and they soak them, you know, so it's a filtration device that they have so that the chemicals that we use don't work. So it really comes down to physical force. And this is a long time ago. This was many years ago. But still, there's more tools out there now right. for the people and, and cell extractions. Not that there is a thing of the past, but thankfully for my brothers and sisters, they don't have to deal with the number of cell extractions. 
distractions that they used to. But I think so. this paints a really clear picture, man. And I appreciate you walking through that. I mean, I think you've seen, we've seen movies, we've seen stuff on TV or whatever reality shows, but you just painted a much different picture with the detail. I mean, it's almost like you can, you can see it, feel it, smell it, almost touch it with soap on the floor, throwing, you know, feces and urine at you, getting hit in the back of the head, like your personal experience there. But it also speaks to like a couple of things. And I think this is a good transition to make one, how important it is to be in good physical condition and it's and effectively be bigger than the person that you're going up against, because you have to be physically intimidating and you have to be able to dominate the worst thing that could happen to anybody in their life. If this hasn't happened to you is be physically dominated by another human. It's, yeah, it's very sure. scary. You learn, especially one that wants to kill you, by the way, uh, and or, or, or at least, you know, harm hurt you, you, hurts you in big ways. It's a, uh, it's a life changing experience and it will change your mindset. And it then, can drive behaviors like hitting the gym more often, yeah. right? Eating more protein, yeah. right? Doing everything you can to have the upper edge or the upper hand in, in that, that particular situation. But it also speaks to the stress level. I have, I, and I hope never to be, have to be in that kind of a situation before. And this is your, this is your job. This is what you punched in for, for the day huh. to walk in there, but the, and, and deal with this and potentially die uh, again. And I'll, this is my personal opinion for somebody that, probably did some things to some other people that I, you know, in my personal opinion, I'm not so sure that you should have the opportunity to even be in the position that you're talking about right now, but I digress. But the stress, you just said that was the second door of the day, yeah. right? And you had to go multiple door after multiple door and do this time after time. And that was one day one in day. the career. Yeah. Uh, that piling on, I mean, you just described kind of what it's like in that very specific situation, but can you maybe talk through, and that this was on a very special uh, team that was very specially selected and trained in order to do these things. So it's not like you're walking in there unprepared. You know what you're getting yourself into, sort sure. of. Uh, sure. yeah. <laughs> but what about for what about for all the other brothers and sisters that you're talking about? How how, how do you navigate the day? What are the things that happen on a day-to-day in the, in the prison that you... Yeah. You know, thanks for bringing that up because um, it's working in a prison environment... When you when you listen to experts, psychologists, and and um, of, of the like, it's likened to a war zone. Okay, so it, you're 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 going into a war zone every single day with the hyper vigilance that you experience, the stress levels. You know, every time an alarm pops off, the fact you got to run to the alarm, you don't know what you're running to, uh, but you know whatever it is, it's something that's bad. Oh, you yeah. know, where your adrenaline goes through the roof, your cortisol goes through the roof, and um, it's it's a, a very difficult thing. And and depending on the prison that you work at, or even the yard that you work on, or sometimes the building that you work in, and how violent that it is, you know, to experience three, four, or five alarms in a day, um, it it's it's something that could happen. So five times during the day, you're rushing to an alarm where you don't know what's happening, or sometimes it's happening on the prison yard and you can see the violence is happening. You know, you're running towards the violence. You have time it's to think like, about it. it yeah. Well, yeah, but it's like street cops, you know, it, you, you know, uh, when you talk about um, active shooters and unfortunately there's been way too many too active many. shooters that have happened recently, cops run towards the active shooter. Everybody else is running away. Cops run toward, you know, prison guards, correctional officers run toward the violence. You don't have the ability to run away. You know, if you do run away, you can have problems. You're going to have bigger problems. You're going to have problems with your brothers and sisters on top of that, you know, but you got to run towards the violence to put that down, you know, and then you, 
a lot of times you don't have the time to power down, just like Street Cop doesn't have the time to power down. They went to a difficult call and, you know, your, your heightened emotions and all those things are still happening. They're still going on in your body and you got to go on to the next call. You can't just take an hour to power down and step out of your adrenaline cortisol world. You have to power up for whatever that next event is, whatever you, that next alarm. And or, you have to stay vigilant in between. You, and you got to right. stay vigilant. Exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. if you lose your vigilance, you can wind up getting hurt or hurting somebody else. Right. So. It's it's if going back to it being described like a war zone, um, when when you think about combat, specifically military combat, we send soldiers to combat for a period of time and then we bring them back unless you're special forces. But then the, even then there's, you know, certain things that they do to make sure you're not constantly going into an operation. Um, so you can have time to power down, you know, be right mentally, emotionally, physically, those types of things. Um, but you, you, going back in a lot of times. Um, if you were involved in a violent event the day before as a correctional officer, you're going right back into that area where that violence just happened. So even if there's not, you know, a, a significantly violent event that happens the following day or even, you know, five hours into the shift, you relive it. Yeah. And it's not a you matter know, of if it's just a matter of when, when it's going to happen. Again. Absolutely. Yeah. So you have all this violence that's happening and, and it, it's constantly built up and um the soldiers get to get to go back because I was in the military as well. I was never in combat, but um, I was I was in during conflicts, but uh, never went to combat. But um, some of my brothers and sisters did. And to hear, you know, they needed that time to power down. You know, I wish that they would have had, a, you know, programs in place like what they have now back in the 80s when I was in in the military. Um, but now they have things to, to, you know, help people decompress, power down, you know, deal with PTSD, getting a little better. that type of thing. Mm-hmm. is getting better. It is getting better. Um, there's not a lot like that. There is an employee assistance program in the prison. Most people don't use it because they don't trust it. Uh, because we'll talk about that. Yeah, because yeah. there's an obligation to report, you know, for certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so correctional officers, you don't have the ability to power down. There's no we're going to pull you out and sit you on an island for a month or two months or six months before you have to go back into combat. So you can get yourself right, get your emotional strike, get your, you know, your um, your mental health right. That type of thing is you're going right back into it every single day. Who can deal with that every single day? Yeah, there's some wild statistics, right? About an average person will go through two very, very traumatic incidents in their whole life, whatever those things might be. Yes. Right. And literally what I'm hearing you say, what the math kind of adds up, it's thousands of incidents. Yeah. Hundreds at least. Hundreds at least. Thank you for bringing that up because that's one of the things that I talk about in my program is the fact that the average person who's not LE, first responder, that type of thing, um, you know, at the most, maybe five uh, critical incidents, okay. five, you know, fight or flight type situations where their adrenaline goes through the roof, their cortisol goes through the roof. But, you know, after a period of time, that all comes back to normal. And, um, it, you know, it could be years before they get put into a situation like that again. Mm-hmm. You know, when you talk about prison alarms or, uh, you know, my, my brothers and sisters are working the streets, you know, some of the, the calls that they have to go on, you know, it's adrenaline up and then they don't really get to come to adrenaline down or cortisol down. It's adrenaline up, adrenaline up, adrenaline up. And over a lifetime. And if people aren't aware, you know, what the stress hormone cortisol does and adrenaline does, it causes premature aging. It, it, yeah. Over. I mean, if you if it only happens once every few years, it's That's actually normal. it's fairly healthy. Yeah, it's normal. You know yeah. what I mean? It's, it's putting your body in a stressful situation. You know, it, it, your body responds, builds body resiliency, responds, build resilience, all that right. kind of stuff. But if you're never allowed to power down from that cortisol adrenaline world, you know, and it was like a light went on when I was studying this stuff, when I was, you know, trying to build this program of wellness to give back. And it was like, 
well, it's no damn wonder that we die before 60 years yeah. old because we're constantly living in this cortisol adrenaline world, you know, and you can't sleep. So, you you know, you drink alcohol and then you wake up kind of tired because you didn't really get good sleep. So you start pounding the the um, caffeine so you can power back up to go back to work. And by the way, if you already, you know, powered up on caffeine and, and um you know, a little over caffeinated, yeah, just 10 X that, right. Oh, you know, and you know, it may be a little irritable because the caffeine right. level. And, um, I see my brothers and sisters walking around the prison and they have an equipment belt on, you know, and they have pepper spray holders and, and what fits perfectly inside of a pepper spray holder is a rock star. The red, 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 bull red yeah, 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 exactly. So they they got energy drinks on their belts, you know, and I'm sitting there going, man, we're killing ourselves out there trying to protect society, right. you know, and, and dealing with the worst of the worst. Um, so it's this vicious cycle of cortisol, adrenaline, caffeine, alcohol. I mean, it's it's tough on the body. It really is. Yeah, it's got to be. So we're talking about sort of the physiological effects and impacts on the body and this constant like tug of war of, yeah. you know, ebb and flow of trying to stay up, but also get down. And then your body never really having an opportunity to downregulate at right, all, correct. whether because of the external uh, stimulus or stress that's being put on or or that you're putting on it yourself. Now, at the same time, like you're looking for an outlet, right? And maybe that's working out, right? Because it makes you feel yeah. good. It might help you with sort of that cortisol response. But at the same time, it could be hurting you because you're now putting even that much more stress on yourself from yeah. a physical perspective. So these are these, like these physiological things. We talk about that a lot out here on the show in a, in a couple of different formats, just, hey, we have to find ways to manage this. But in, in this line of work, it's, I'm going to say it's, I, to me, it almost sounds impossible, but I know there's an answer here and you, you, that's what you deal with. But before we get there, yeah. there's also this other thing that starts to create. And I think when you start this, this is anywhere in life, whether it's corrections or other but I hear a lot of law enforcement, well, I'll just say first responders talk about this, where they start going to substance abuse or they start going to uh, these high risk behaviors yeah. um, that start to manifest into bigger problems. Mm -hmm. Right. And then it, it kind of spins wildly out of control. I mean, I don't know what the divorce rate is in the, in the law enforcement community, but I know it's very, very high. I mean, I think in the state of California, it's already like 60% non-law enforcement related. Right. I, I'd heard that it's as high as 75%. And, uh, you know, there's jokes out there that you're not even a, um, a senior officer into two divorces in. That's awful. You know, and, and you could be, you know, five years in the department and already two divorces in, but Thank you. Getting back to that high risk behavior. So, you know, that was something that I struggled with for a long time, because when you're living in a world of adrenaline and cortisol and you're living in a high risk world to begin with in, in the prison system and you're exposed to that, you know, that type of violence and that type of craziness for, you know, eight, 16 hours a day or whatever it is, um, that becomes normal. Yeah, that's, you know, that, that's to me, that's crazy to think. Yeah, like it's almost insanity to think that that's oh. normal for a sizable part of our population. How many law enforcement or corrections it's officers? 30,000. 30,000 people in our state that are, yeah. that that's normal for. It's normal, right? So it's, it's, it's crazy because you don't feel right unless there's some level of stress that you're under, some level of adrenaline, some level of cortisol, you know, some sage of hypervigilance. I mean, in some cases, extreme hypervigilance. You're, you're, you're like stuck in this world. And as much as you want to step back and, and not 
you know, feel like you need to um, risk something. And for me, you know, high risk was it was it took all kinds of different forms and different shapes and to different like sizes. That. To say, yeah. So and, and I had to go to counseling for two years to unwire my brain. Um, I got into a wreck with the department and uh, that was another wake up call was, um, hey, dummy, you know, if you keep doing some of this high risk behavior, you're not going to make it to retirement mm-hmm. outside of, you know, my my physical issues, um, my medical ailments that I had going on, my high risk behavior was going to, you know, cause me not to make it to the end of retirement. Mm. So, you know, and whether it's, you know, I was constantly looking for ways to feed my, my appetite. So when I was going to this, this counselor, he's a great counselor, by the way. Um, and I went through some, some counselors. He was probably the sixth counselor that, uh, I went to see, uh, because the other ones were crazier than I was. And, um, I was like, Oh my God, this, this person's going to help me. Nope. Next. Heard, heard this so many times. Oh, yeah. They just don't have any idea. They, they no, can't relate. I, no, they can't relate at all. So, you know, I, the, the guy that I finally go to, I'm like, dude, you don't know me. I'm going to waste my time talking to you. And you're going to be just like the other quacks that I met, you know, um, and he goes, really? He goes, well, you know, give me a shot. I'm like, all right. So I talked to him for five minutes and he goes, I got an idea who you are. And he goes, you're this guy, bop, 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 and rolled it all out to him. And like, oh shit, this guy gets me. Okay. You know, all right, I get it. You know, <laughs> he's my guy, you know, for, so two years I went to see this guy and he's trying to unwire my brain. He says, you have developed such an appetite for destructive behavior, high risk behavior, just like any other appetite. You know, if you go home and you eat a gallon of ice cream every day and you develop that appetite and you're trying to outdo yourself because pretty soon that's not going to satisfy you. At some point, you got to step away from ice cream, right. whether it's cold turkey or whether it's, you know, weaning yourself <laughs> off a little bit at a time. You got to get off of that. Right. So and that's what that's the way that he explained it to me. And it made a lot of sense to me was I needed to step outside of that appetite and put that appetite away and, and away for good. And um, that's what really got me. My trajectory changed you know, in big ways was understanding that if I kept on the path that I was going, um, there was going to be a wreck. And I tell this when I do my presentations up and down the state and, and I've done them, you know, nationally as well. But I tell people there was a wreck coming for me and it was either coming in the department or is coming in my personal life. And um, the wreck happened in the department. I got in trouble. And then um, it also happened in my personal life. But the wreck that I saw coming in my personal life was was a, a life ender. You know, it was doing it, not unusual for me to uh, do 120, 130 miles an hour in my Ducati and not care, and not care. You needed it, needed it to happen, wanted it to happen, you know, and, and passing six cars at a time and, you know, that type of thing. And uh, crazy thing is that I had since sold my Ducati, but um Went out and bought another one just a year and a half ago, and I was actually up uh, riding up in the foothills, right in the mountains this weekend, and and uh, almost got hit head on by a car. And I'm sitting there going, I don't have those high risk behaviors anymore, but here I am, you know, almost getting taken exposed, out, yeah, yeah, exposed still. But uh, yeah, I knew that there was a wreck coming, and and things needed to change. So a lot of that came by way of um, having a significant emotional event in my life when my when my ass got kicked by the department. And when they said, Hey, you know, drive up to Sacramento, we got to have a conversation about, you know, you and, and your high risk behavior. And from there, uh, it, it was kind of a, a downward spiral for a minute, you know, and then I needed to reinvent myself and go, okay, you know, if, if I'm in a wreck in the department, I still have to perform within the department. I'm a performer. That's what I do. I'm a get it done guy. So I was never going to lay down and not go to work and not, you know, mm-hmm. but, but when you've had, you know, that type of, um, checking by the department and you're like, Oh shit, call. it was a wake up call. And so I go to this prison that's hour and a half away from my house. They reassigned me to another prison hour and a half away okay. from my house. And when I get there, 
um, the staff, it's another high security prison and the staff were very welcoming to me. They had heard a lot about me. Staff do background checks on, on administrators all the time, you know, when they're, when they're on their way sure. to an institution, makes especially, sense. especially as a placement, you know, it's like, Oh, what did this guy do to get placed here at this <laughs> institution? Right. So, um, a lot of them, some of them knew me already. Some of them did a background check and found out, you know, during my younger years as a supervisor and as a manager, I was a bit of an asshole. And, uh, but you know, I, when I talked to the union guys over there, like, Hey, we're, we're going to give you a chance, you know, just don't be the guy that you were at Corcoran or, you know, wherever we're going to give you a chance. So the fact that they welcomed me in, you know, after having, you know, had my ass handed to me by the department and then going through what I was going through in, in my, my marriage and my personal life and all the difficulties that I was having there, it was a big breath of relief to go, you know, these guys got my back. Right. So, um, while I was there and I was, I was pouring into staff, I was like, I got to help staff. I got to help staff. You know, um, that's when I started to really develop the wellness thing and go, how can I help staff? You know, four years, I think I was four, four or five years into working at the institution. And there was either four or five um, suicides, officer suicides at the institution. And I was like, this has got to stop. So that's my thing. So I'm, I'm listening to you tell the story, kind of your own story. And there were points in there where you knew this wasn't good, but there was a wake up call that you got from the department. You said there was some stuff in your personal life and this kind of all came together and you got this talking to. So it's almost like you had, I, I call this like um, shaking somebody's state. Like you got your, your cage rattled, yeah, right? Cage rattled. Significant than, emotional event right, is what I call it. Right, yeah. Significant emotional event rather than being smacked on your motorcycle by yep. doing, from doing something stupid or drinking yourself to death yep. or what is the consequence? I mean, what are we seeing? You just mentioned that when people hit these significant emotional events and the choices that they make in this place that they reach, yes. which leads into the work that you're doing, which is a point of no return a lot of times. And again, I've had other people that have sat in that chair and have talked to me about this and had their own experiences at a firefighter who sat there with a, a loaded line nine millimeter in the, in the front seat of his car and his friend just so happened to call him right sitting in that parking lot or or. There's been other stories. I guess my point of this is without rehashing any of that is they take it to a point where they don't think there's another way and they're not, they don't think that there's going to be another chance or they don't in their mind. Well, there either that or they're, they're in so much pain that they just want to be out of the pain. And the only way that they feel like they can get out of that pain in that moment is to, you know, to end everything. Um, and I call that when I, when I do my presentations, I call that point in time. So if you find yourself in a point in time and you're just overwhelmed by everything and it's all coming at you, right? Your finances are screwed up. You, you um, I call it too, you know, when you, when you, when you have an officer can, can't get right. That's what that's okay. kind of that's kind of my term. Officer can't get right. You know, you're having problems at your fam with your family. You're having problems at work. You're having financial problems, and you continue down that path, and you just can't get right. You can't right yourself. You know, you, you can't get into a better place, and you're stuck in that point in time. Sometimes it takes somebody else getting involved. Sometimes it takes asking for mm -hmm. help. You know, and, and we're not great at asking for help. You mentioned that at the get go. Yeah. yeah, we suck at asking for help. But you got to have the ability to, you know, put that stigma aside. It doesn't make you a pussy if you ask right. for help. It makes you strong. Exactly. You know, I sit there and go, who's the bigger pussy? The person that puts the, the gun in the mouth and pulls the trigger or the one that says it's you just checked one. out everything. At that point, you know, you've left a, an aftermath of destruction after you've pulled the trigger. For somebody else for, to deal with. For somebody else to deal with, you know, yeah. where if you ask for 
for help and you, and you, you know, start reaching out and you start putting those parts and pieces together, you can get out of that point in time. You can become whole again. And I tell people this all the time. We can make you whole, whether it's, you know, the guardian program or whether it's a, a psychologist, because as guardians, we're really mentors. Sometimes it takes more than a mentorship to get you right. Sometimes it takes counseling. Like for me, it was, it was two years. I had an officer reach out to me that, um, needed to go into an inpatient program. So it's, you know, trying to help find the the, the right inpatient program for mm-hmm. that person so that they can get themselves right. You can be whole again. And I tell people that all the time, just because you're broken right now and you could be severely broken, you don't have to stay broken. You can get fixed. We can make you whole again. So let's talk about the guardian program and yeah. how you're helping people do that. Cause you've talked about this presentation that you're doing because, and how you're bringing this to light. And, and again, I just want to make the note as a civilian, you know, who again, doesn't have to deal with this stuff on a daily basis, but wants to be aware and maybe try to be part of the solution somehow. And I think starting with trying to be part of the solution is becoming informed. Yeah. And there's so many people. And again, this, this uh, you and I were talking off air at some point about, you know, kind of department of corrections, being the redheaded stepchildren of law enforcement, of law enforcement. Yeah. Nobody wants to think about them. Nobody ever talks about them. There's yeah. never any cool Instagram pics of department corrections, no. right? There's never any feel good stories coming out of the state prison system. There really isn't. There isn't. There's nothing. Yeah. There's go to work, deal with the worst of the worst, come home, be expected to deal with it. Come back the next day, do it again yeah. and again and again for 38 years and go into retirement, maybe to live a couple more years. Yeah. And so the, a lot of people go into retirement broken, by the way. Uh, well, based on everything you've described, it's yeah. very obvious to me why. Mm-hmm. And there's this 30,000 of them right now that are in that in that situation right now That's correct. that are on that that could be on that trajectory. So yes. enter the guardian program, enter a guy who basically got a second chance. Yeah. Right. And the, the department did that for you because of the reputation that you had and how hard you worked and the, and the, the relationships that you had built along the way. And these you, you mentioned it as being sort of a breath of fresh air, like, yeah. You know, you kind of take take a step back and like, okay, I have an opportunity here. What am I going to do with it? How does that work out? How did we get to a Guardian program? So there was a lot of us. It wasn't just me. There was several people who recognized that we needed something. We needed a spark. Um, we, we needed to initiate some change. And what did that look like? So uh, initially I started working with um, CCPOA, California Correctional Peace Officer Association, okay. labor organization for line staff and uh, developed a, a program uh, with them and would travel up and down the state of California doing presentations. My initial presentation was called Out of the Darkness, where it talked about, you know, hey, let, let's have a conversation about what we deal with. Let's be able to talk about it in a room to try to get past the stigma and try to acknowledge. Let's all just acknowledge where we're at. Right. Let's talk. Let's talk some truth. Shit's hard. Shit, yes. The shit ain't easy. Right? right. Let's have some truth. And the more that I, I spoke and the more people were like, you know, this guy's talking the truth. He's not, you know, sugarcoating anything. He's telling it like it is. Not only that, but I was an administrator while I was walking out here, you know, doing these presentations. So, you know, it wasn't, it was cop to cop because I, I still considered myself a cop, right? But more than that, it was administrator cop. If this administrator can stand in front of, you know, 50 cops or whatever and talk about the struggles that he had, I can relate to that. It's so like the, a player's coach, right? On the football oh, field man, or whatever, yeah, right? Yeah. No. Okay. Here's all my mistakes. Well, you know, let's learn from my mistakes. And you probably had some of the same mistakes. Let's, let's talk about that. And what'd you do for your mistakes? This is what I did for my mistakes. Yeah. So I've been punched forward. in the mouth too. I know what that oh, feels yeah. like. I didn't just get handed this position. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. yeah gotcha. hundred percent. So we started off with CCPOA tra- uh, traveling up and down, you know, the California and, 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 
what that branched out into some other things. Um, the California Correctional Supervisors Organization reached out to me and said, will you do some presentations for us? I said, absolutely. So I went and did some presentations for them. I actually wrote, you know, what would essentially be a pilot project um, that that was the program, which has since become the Guardians. And um, I shopped that program around to try to get some funding for it, um, shopped it to CCPOA. Um, they went a different direction and uh, shopped it, actually sent a copy up to um, some, some very high ranking people in the department. Um, didn't hear back from them. I think they had already started, you know, their own version of the wellness program. So I think they wanted to continue on with that. And then later on, I was getting close to retirement and I had a CCSO, California Correctional Supervisors Organization. They reached out to me and said, what's the next step in this, you know, wellness thing? And I say, well, funny you should ask, because I got this little pilot project that, you know, I wrote called Guardians and uh, the president of CCSO, Art Gonzalez, says, why don't you come up um, to the Sacramento area, basically? And, and why don't you you know, show me what this is about? He'd already known me from doing presentations and being around CCSO and knew, knew that I was in the wellness arena and he really wanted to support the wellness thing and, and get that jumped off. So um, at that point, I was like, why wouldn't I? You know, they're right. willing to potentially fund this and move it forward. Uh, so I went up there, laid it out to him. Um, he's like, I want to be involved. CCSO wants to be involved. So I started um, putting the parts and pieces together. So initially, like I said, my my uh, first program that I wrote was called Out of the Darkness. And it was because I found myself in a very dark place, um, especially towards that that time in my career where I was going through all the madness, that point in time that I the had. The point in time. The yeah. point in time. And um, officer can't get right. I was I was an administrator can't get right, right, you know, to a large degree. Right. So then I'm sitting there going. Out of the darkness means that there's light, right? I need to walk towards the light. I need to figure out what that light looks like. I need to start making better decisions. I start need to start putting my life back in order and and get out of this point in time. So we, we live in in the law enforcement law, you know, world, um, any type of first responder, specifically corrections, it is a very, very dark environment. And over years, we we go from the person that we were when we started the department to a very dark version of the person that we are in today's our mm -hmm. own world now. We're much darker than we were because of what we've experienced, right? But just we piles on. Oh, it just piles on the darkness and darkness and darkness. And I'm sitting there going, oh, I've got all this darkness that I'm living in. How do I get out of the darkness? And oddly enough is I'm, I'm listening to you. I'll give another plug to the band Disturbed. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, guys, yeah. yeah. They actually have a um, a uh, a song. I think it's called The Light. Mm -hmm. And when I was listening to the song, it was like, hey, you don't have to live in this darkness. You can make a choice to live in the light. And I'm sitting there going, that's my mantra. That's that's everything right. that I've been trying mindset. to establish mindset. That's mindset. Right? right. So I started focusing more on the light than the darkness and trying to understand what it takes to get to the light. And when I was doing research and, and um, really looking into uh, the, the solution, we know what the problem is. Yep. Has anybody come up with a solution other than education talking about we're talking it, about it? You yeah. know, yeah, we, we're, we're reactionary. But where's the where's the positivity? Where's the you know, before the shit happens, the proactive portion of it. Right. where's the proactive portion of it? So in my research, I ran across this organization called the HeartMath Group, HeartMath Organization. They're based out of California. And uh, I, I was reading up on, on a program they have, and it's uh, the, the BPR, which is Building Personal Resiliency, right? And I'm sitting there going, 
what's this all about? So I reach out to them and they're like, man, we've been dealing with law enforcement for a long time. We've got studies that we did. I think they did a study down in San Diego with 80 officers and they put them all through this program. And at the end of the program, they went back and had them do a survey. And and every officer, I believe, responded that the heart math techniques helped them tremendously. So yeah, it's market. Yeah. It wasn't just like some department policy, no. you know, or whatever. Yeah. I gotcha. And it wasn't done in a reactive manner. It was done in a proactive manner. So I'm sitting there going, this might be the answer. Right. So, um, as they're sending me information and of course there's a cost to go through the program It's an eight week program and, um, it's all done via zoom and, uh, you know, the CCSO um, picked up the tab for the program and we um, there were some key players that uh, it's not just me and guardians. There's some key players that I reached out to that I either heard about or had knowledge of. Um, one of them is a, uh, a um, psychologist actually who worked within the department. Um, she's an amazing person. Um, she, 27 years she did with the department before she retired. She wanted to give back to her brothers and sisters, um, some other lieutenants, uh, that, you know, wanted to give back as well. So we put this team together and initially there was, I believe only three of us that went through the heart mat training and all three of us was like, this is it. This, this is, this is, you this, figured it out. Oh, this is it. We figured it out. Right. So after we went through the training, um, we started to reach out and started to really build the team and uh, found some really awesome people that were part of the like a wellness uh, program that's in place. The, the uh, It's it's um, oh, gosh, it's the uh, peer support. So they were already part of this peer support program. They were already helping their brothers and sisters. They heard either heard about guardians or we heard about them. So we reached out to them and said, you know, let's set up a little interview, a little meet greet. Uh, we talked, you know, with each one of them for about an hour uh, via Zoom because that was during all the COVID crap. Mm-hmm. And uh, we found a really good core, a small core that we can start building off of. So we put them all through the heart math training. Everybody thought this is this is awesome. And it is awesome. And when we go out and we, we do the presentations, we go out as a team now and we were touring prisons and and uh talking about heart math and everybody all the cops were like oh this is the best thing we need this how come nobody ever came up with this before but much like what happens in the le world is uh when you're there in front of them talking to them everybody's the light bulb goes, the light bulb goes off. off right but then after the fact you know when you're expecting all those phone calls and you want to get into the one-on-one mentoring or the group mentoring to teach them these techniques these stress mitigation techniques kind of how to control apart. their emotions and i want to i want to plug heart math for a second because it's an amazing program if the, all the LE guys out there, um, please, uh, you know, either reach out to me and I'll, I'll tell you how the Guardians is utilizing it or look at the Building Personal Resiliency Program and think about putting some of your officers through that program so they can mentor other officers in mm. teaching the heart math techniques because the heart math techniques is all about prevention and doing techniques in the moment to bring your emotions down, to bring your mental, um, you know, mental wellness in, into uh, you know, a positive place and it has an impact on you physically and spiritually as well. So when you think about the domains of resiliency, you have the physical domain, you have the mental domain, you yep. have the emotional domain, you know, all these domains are all working together. And when one of those domains is broken, if you're broken emotionally, it has an impact on the other three domains. If you're broken physically, it has an impact. Yeah. So you have to focus on it collectively, holistically, holistically. And when, when all those four areas are clicking, you're coherent, you're in 
in a good state, right? You at least, so, and you have awareness of what what the problem might be or what I might need to go address next. It's the physical, it's the mental, it's the emotional or whatever. You, you're aware. Right. And if you have to have contact with an officer on the streets and the officer is aware of these heart math techniques and just came from a difficult, difficult call, or, you know, if, if it's an inmate in the prison side and, you know, there was just a riot and everybody's trying to power down and, and the officers use these techniques to, to regain their emotional standpoint, their mental standpoint, that means then moving forward from that point, they're, they're going to be, you know, a better, there's been a better some amount of recovery. That's there's happened. been recovery. That's yeah. a great word for it. Yeah. yeah. So, and it's all about resiliency is your ability to recover from a stressful situation in, in a, uh, a better way. It's fatigue management. Way. It is fatigue management. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it, so when you put all these parts and pieces together, you know, if you're a police chief um, or, you know, uh, running a prison yard, don't you want the, the, the most emotionally, mentally, and physically also fit people that you can have working for you? Oh, it, so this is, this is an interesting question because as a civilian, you're goddamn right I do. Yeah. Like, that's <laughs> yeah. where I want my money being spent, <laughs> yes. right? My yeah. tax dollars being spent because I need those guys to stay in there and I need people to want to do the job that you've done, right? right. Because right. I, I don't have the capacity to do it. I don't want to do it. I've got kids, yeah. right? I want I want my, my family to be protected from these people. Like, I, yes, yeah. the answer is so, yes, but- but well, let's talk about that for a second, too, because you, you listen to all these politicians and, you know, they go after Ellie, defund the police and, oh, my gosh, officers need more training and you're not trained well enough and all that. You know what? Where the rubber meets the road is if you are working in a prison or on the streets or whatever, sometimes you have a fraction of a second to make a decision on, on you know, a uh a, a uh, whether you're going home at the end of the night or whether the bad guy's going home at the end of the night. And if it's between me or the bad guy, I'm, I'm the one going home at the end of the night. You Seems know? fair. Yeah. But if you're already stressed and you're not emotionally fit, you're not, you're not in the best capacity mentally or physically, and you're thrown into a stressful situation and all that's going through your body and your mind, and you're trying to make the best decision, split second decision in that moment, are you really equipped to make that decision? You've already gone through all the training that you needed right. to go through. You may be a use of force instructor. You may know the use of force policy backwards and forwards, but because of your stress level, your emotional fitness, your mental fitness, right? You are not in a place in that moment to make the best decision. So regardless of how much training you've gone through, and I hear that we hear this from politicians all the time, officers need more training. Not necessarily. Officers need to be less stressed. Right. Officers need to be emotionally fit, right? We need to recognize that the answer is doing things that puts them in a better mindset, something that they can practice. And that's where this heart math thing comes in, man. These, these, these um, techniques are so simple. You know, and it's really tapping into, you know, your emotions. And I'm not talking your emotions, you know, not. not well, give me give me an example. Because, yeah. again, I, there's going to be people out there going to be like, dude, this is fucking hokey. Like, what yeah. are we talking about? Sitting around holding hands in a circle. No, 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 shit. nothing like so that. So give us give us an example. Because yeah, so, I think that going back to the stigma, this is the thing. Like, I don't want to go sit around in a circle and hold hands with people no, and, and no. talk about my problems or, you know, what my relationship was like with my parents growing up. No, like, it's, and it's nothing like that. OK, so yeah. give us an example. So what it, what it teaches you is it teaches you in the moment how to um, how to to identify the uh, the draining emotions that you happen to be in. So if you picture a, a chart and on the right side of the chart are all these these emotions that are draining you, fatigue, you know, um, irritable, uh, you know, 
mad, just being pissed off, being angry, anxious, anxious, nervous. You know, it's all those stressful type situations, right? If you're constantly living on that side of the chart or what we call a grid, that side of the grid, and and you're like, your battery's constantly being depleted, your battery's constantly being drained, and you're always tired. How many cops do you talk to, you know, whether it's on the streets or inside the prison, go, man, I'm I'm freaking tired all the time. All the time. And they jump on testosterone thinking that's going to, you know, save them. But it's not, it's not that. Um, oh yeah. Blame the hormones. Yeah. Blame the hormones. It's the fact, the fact that, that you are in these constant, you know, states of energy drains, right? So when you start to become more self-aware of what's draining your energy, what emotions you're going through every day, that's draining your energy. And then you, you recognize that. So for me, I'll use myself an example. I was pissed off from the time I woke up in the morning when my feet hit the floor, I was just an angry dude. You know, just not happy. Right. I was starting to lose energy based off of my emotions right off the bat. They hadn't even started. They hadn't even started yet. And when you go to work in a prison and that's how your day starts, you think your day is going to get any better. So you got nowhere to go, but more recovery debt. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So, you know, you have all these these emotions and all these attitudes that are constantly draining you. And then you have to recognize that there's. And and by the way, when you're living on that side of the grid, that's the cortisol, adrenaline. You know, that's all the the negative stress hormones It's the stress hormones. Side, right? right. But then there's the other side of the grid where you're appreciative, you're happy, you're calm, you know, those types of things. And you recognize that, well, I'd rather live on this left side of the grid. This it's is a no brainer. Right? Yeah, this <laughs> is where this is where I can, you know, to repower. This is where I can, you know, be more resilient. This is where I can store up my my energy better. Right. This is where I'm going to be um, more emotionally fit so I can make better decisions, stressful situations and I can recover faster. How do I get myself over there? Right. So it, it really does come down to a personal choice. It's so freaking simple. It is at the I end choose, of the day, isn't it? I choose not to be angry. in this, this angry negative state, right? right? I choose to be, you know, more more calm and more appreciative and for me it was just going Thinking about what calm feels like, thinking about, you know, how to how to put myself over there and just not having those angry thoughts. Right. And it takes a little bit of practice. Oh, you definitely to have to peel there. back the layers of the onion a few times. What's right? causing it? Right. You know, that you may thing. think, you know, until somebody maybe even helps you get to the next level and go, oh, fuck, I thought it was this. But it's, it's not that at all. Like, exactly. I'm, I have fear. Let me ask you this. Do you ever have a person that, you know, when they come into your gym and, and I don't know, maybe you don't want to answer this. On no, the, go ahead. The man, answer. Yeah. But is that one person that you know that you're going to wind up having a 20 minute conversation with because they got all these questions and they just want to talk yeah. and they stress you out. Happens every day. And it's like, I got more shit to do, but it, I, I got to try to give this person you have time. to put on the hat. You got to put the hat on the business yeah. owner hat. And you got to yeah. be that guy. Right. Yeah, all the time. So if you were to go, oh, my God, you know, it's about that time that that Johnny's going to come in and Johnny's going to want to have a conversation. So you go, OK. Let me just let me power down. Let me get to a mental state, an emotional state where I can handle it better and just know that it's going to be what it is. Right. I don't have to get all bent. You know, I can I can make it over the next 20 minutes and be OK. It's literally a decision. It's a decision. It's yeah. a it's a philosophy to live life in a better way and not let stress impact you the way that it does. And th- this is the most simplest of terms, by the way. It gets deeper than this. Oh, I'm sure. You know, this is just one of those exercises. Because if it was that simple, everybody would just be choosing to do it. Well, part of it right. is that simple. You know, like, OK. All right, yeah. Fair 
enough. Yeah, but no, part of it is, you know, and, and uh, when we do our initial um, mentoring, when we meet and, and uh, the, the, the initial time that we talk with somebody who's in a place where they really need us, uh, what we do is I'll send them a copy of the grid, right? And I'm like, just look at the grid, look at the right side, look at the left side, see what drains your energy, mm-hmm. see what restores your energy, you know, see what puts you in a bad mood, see what, what you know, the types mm-hmm. of, of, um, uh, emotions that you go through on, on, you know, every day. And then when I actually initiate that first talk with them, we'll talk for, you know, maybe an hour or something like that. And, and what does that look like? What does the grid look like? How do you get yourself? What causes so your the right to the left? To the so right, to exactly. And, and what causes those energy drains that makes you exhausted all the time, you know, and it, it, people were like, man, it, this is simple. I can do this. And I'm like, yeah, you can. I'm like, so take that grid to work with you every day, put it in your lunch bell. And every once in a while, you know, during the day, pull the grid out and say, where am I at right now? Am I on the right side of the grid or I'm on the left side of the grid? Where do I want to be? If I'm on the right side, I want to get to the left side. I want to be on the left side. What's it going to take to get there? Right. Well, it's going to take a different mindset, a different philosophy, you know, recognizing that I need to change my emotions. I need to change my thought process. And then how do you stay there? Right. So it's really formulating a plan of check-ins, doing check-ins and becoming self-aware of what puts you back on the, on the energy draining side. Yeah. I I imagine there's also got to be some tools or some skills that you got to learn to, you got to learn because you're going to wind up on that negative side. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Realizing it, knowing that you're there, being okay with it, not beating yourself up. There's no self-loathing for doing it. Just working to get back to the other side. hundred percent. And I assume there's, I assume that there might be some things that are employed there with having somebody like a sponsor or somebody maybe there to help you. So what's that about? Like, how does that work? So that's where the mentors come in. And and, uh, there's there's six of us right now. And um, it's a constant check in. So, you know, I'm working with a few people right now and I'll reach out to them and I'm like, okay, how you doing? Let's, let's talk about, you it's like know, coaching. Yeah. It's coaching. That's yeah. really what it is. You know, and you don't really call it life coaching, but the, the word that, that comes up again and again and again is just mentoring, Yeah, you know? Okay. And, and the thing is, is who better to mentor you than somebody that's walked in your shoes? This is a cop helping cop type thing. That's a huge piece to this that I've heard a lot of times about like, where's the information coming from? And in this case, it's coming from my mentor is a guy who's not only walked in my shoes, he's walked in a long time. He's probably done more things than I'll ever do in my career, which I got to imagine is a really important thing. And the resistance piece or the friction piece that keeps people from taking advantage of maybe these other programs. So yeah. So I I, I can get behind the mentoring thing because this is somebody that I could literally look up to and go, whatever I've gone through or what I'm going through, like this person has gone through as much or maybe even more, Or, or it's not that we're, we're playing, we're keeping score. No, it's just a recognition. And there's a trust. There's a trust. And, and, and that's, that's a big thing. Thank you for bringing that up. Trust and confidentiality. Okay. You know, the fact that, and, and some of our mentors are still working. And, um, the fact that, um, they had the, the mentors that are still working still have an obligation to report. I mean, that's just departmental policy. That's what has so, to happen. So talk about that. What does that mean? Obligation to report. So if you're mentoring someone and they, they bring up a, a, a severe policy violation that's happened, um, then the person that is still working has an obligation to report back to the department that there's been a serious policy violation. Well, that's, I mean, that's heavy. And then that, you know, very possibly could initiate an investigation and then there should be disciplinary, that type of thing. So I imagine that is a big deterrent for people wanting to reach out for help. Of course it is. I mean, because if they get to that point in time where things are really that bad, it's highly likely 
that some of this underlying shit exists. It's happened. Right. Right. Yeah. So what do they do? Yeah. And you know, in, in talking about that as well, one, there's two big fears that cops have when it comes to reaching out for help. Okay. Am I going to lose my job? Are you going to take my gun? I mean, and, and when it comes to the mental health arena, the mental health world, the wellness world, that's those two a, things are really, they're really attached to They're They're attached. Yeah. Even outside of the stigma, I'm going to look like a pussy if I ask for help, you know, not necessarily, you know, it, we're, we're, everybody's starting to understand what this wellness thing looks like and what it feels like. And it's okay to ask for help. So asking for help is, is, you know, um, it, it's more, uh, accepted these it's getting, days. It's getting better. It's yeah. getting better. Yeah. But if, if there is an obvious obligation to report and people already think, you know, that if I bring out my mental issues, my emotional issues with somebody in the department mm-hmm. and then they report back to the department that I need a fitness for duty um, because, you know, I may not be fit to be a peace officer because of what I'm going through. And I'll, you know, um, I'll be removed from my position as a peace officer. I'll be put in the mailroom to work or I'll be taken out of the beat, you know, and, and given a desk job. I'll be taking my, my ability to um, carry a firearm will be taken away. These are all things that cops are concerned it's with. It's your identity. It is your identity. And right. by the way, I, I got a whole, you know, two, three hours. I could talk about all the identity that we put into a fucking piece of metal that's on our chest. That's you know what silly, I mean? Right? Oh my God. You know, and how many retirees, once they step away from the profession that they, you know, spent 25, 30, you know, 40 years in some cases. And they're so much of their identity is wrapped up in a badge. They don't know what to do after. They have no clue, you know, where your identity, it is part of your profession, but you know, your profession is, is what you do so that you can afford to do things outside it's of work. You, you know, it's, it's not exactly who you are. It's part of who you are, right. but you're a dad, you're a, you know, you're a mm-hmm. husband, you're a brother, you're a fill in the blank. You're a, a football coach. You're a, a mentor for other people. You're so much more than just a cop. And, and I talk about the bubble, you know, the, the, the LE bubble, we all live in this nice little LE bubble. And over years, if you're not in that LE bubble, you, there's no trust for you. You know, we don't trust people. We don't associate with people. Mm. A lot of the, the cool shit that we used to do, you know, before we were cops, we step away from that because it's not cop oriented or, you know, those types of things. We're, we're so focused so on protecting yourself. We're yeah. so focused on cop shit. You know, if that bubble ever burst, that cop bubble ever burst because of a, you know, a, um, a disciplinary issue where there's a termination or uh, there's a, uh, a um, injury that happens and you just can't physically perform the functions of the job anymore or retirement and that bubble burst for whatever reason point in time, we're back to that point in time. Who are you outside of that LE bubble? Mm -hmm. You know? So I, I hunt, I fish, I go to the gym, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a husband, I'm a dad, you know, those types of things. You put more emphasis on those things. If you lose the LE portion, you still got a significant part of your life right, and your right. identity that you haven't lost. Right. You know, that's that's a big deal. But, uh, you know, getting back to the um, the Guardian program. So those those techniques and what we teach and, and getting people to ask for help and recognizing and the trust and the confidentiality and all that kind of stuff, it all matters. But, uh, you know, we thought we're, the phone calls were going to be, you know, coming in and people were going to be rushing to us and all that kind of stuff. And, 
Um, unfortunately, it, it hasn't happened as, as much as we'd like. Um, CCSO lost uh, funding or there's not funding for the program at this point. So, you know, one of the things that you and I talked about offline is and I'm so excited to see that there's so many entities out there that are moving in the same direction that I'm moving. Not, right. Maybe not exactly the same way. It's slowly it's going that direction, though. It is. Yeah. yeah. You know, I like to think that that um, the Guardian program you know, being dialed in on the preventative measures, not everybody's aware of the heart math and the preventative measures. Right. But if we can partner, some of these entities can partner, you know, and, and see what the other's doing. And, um, I had partnered for a little while with some, uh, Fresno PD guys and, uh, yeah. one, one officer specifically, Jess Serta, he's a great wellness cop. He's running the wellness program, uh, down there with Fresno PD. I think there's 850 cops on Fresno PD. Is that uh, right? Yeah. He's doing phenomenal things down there. So, um, talk to him about, uh, heart math and, and talk to him about what he's doing. And, uh, he's, he's, he's one of those guys that's constantly reaching out to Ellie up and down the state of California and elsewhere, trying to make sure trying that Fresno's got, well, not only that, but trying to make sure Fresno's got the best uh, program for their cops. Oh, just in terms of checking into like, hey, what are best practices? What there? are best What's practices? Exactly. So he can improve his own program. And sharing his best practices with others with as other well. people. So, you know, it's 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 like the, the LE community is, you know, coming together to a certain degree under the wellness platform, but um, it's moving, you know, it's still moving pretty slow. It's a culture and we got to get past, you know, part of that. Yeah, so the culture piece. But there's also this, um, agency piece. And you mentioned, I couldn't keep track of all the acronyms there, but it sounded like there was kind of three different organizations that you were trying to work with, or you said you were shopping the program to that had gone different directions and finally made it to, to the one organization that had a little funding and there was some, there's some legs underneath it and you were yeah. getting to, to get out there, which was then very quickly kind of starting to spread, right? People were starting to find out about it. They're yes. asking questions like, Oh, this is great. So you start, you're starting to create what I like to refer to as critical mass, Yeah, right? It's starting to kind of roll forward mm-hmm. until a point in time, for lack of a better term, when the funding gets pulled from it, right? right? Which then leaves the program, more importantly, the officers and the people that need the help, um, and then you and your, the people that you're working with right. in a really tough situation, right? Because in order to keep that critical mass going, uh, there is going to likely need to be some type of funding in there. Somebody's going to have to be backing this up somewhere. But as a result, because there isn't there, isn't there, then it comes back to being the solution finder, the get shit done guy, yeah. right? Who then continues to push forward out of his own pocket on his own time with no compensation, just knowing that you're doing the right thing and you're doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do right. to get it down the, get it down the road. And you're seeing the impacts and you're talking about, and that's why we're here today. What's the linchpin, dude? Like I see all these different organizations. There's no standardized process. And I'm not saying having a standardized process is the right answer because you're still figuring it out. Right. Like you're still it's the thing is still evolving. But what is the what is the answer, man? Like, how do we how do we get this help to the people that need it? How do we get it to leadership at a level where it's accepted and it's being pushed for? Because I believe that if you I could be totally naive, dude, but Here's what I, here's what I do know in my experience along in my life, when enough people start making enough noise about it, yeah. right. And they start telling you support. I mean, just get on fucking Twitter posts can go viral with six people going crazy about something, which can create some CEO at some company to get fired. Yeah. Right. Like <laughs> if we could just get a little bit more of that critical mass going at a higher level, then maybe it speeds up the process, at least getting the information downstream so that people are informed and can start asking more questions and then maybe implement it. I guess my point is, is 
what, what, what's the answer to that part? Because it sounds like there is an answer. Is it that people don't want to hear it right now? Or is it the voices or the things on some other level or at some other particular program are just louder than this one? I don't even think it's that. I think it's that there's a lot of people out there trying to do really good things. And um, we're, we're all kind of moving in the same direction, but also in different directions. Like not talking to one another. Well, I mean, there's a lot of talk that's happening. You know, um, there's there's different levels of, of communication that's going on out there. But I, I think everybody believes that, you know, um, they can make a difference and that they want to make a difference. And they are. They are making a difference. I think that the community that we're trying to serve, mm. the L.A. community, is so um, difficult to, to, uh, get moved in that direction. I mean, the, the culture is very deeply ingrained. Oh, totally. Very, I, that I do know. Holy yeah. shit is a deeply ingrained. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways we're struggling just to survive. You know, our nose is above water, right? And we do a good job of treading, treading, treading and wearing ourselves out over time. To oh, you're keep, experts at that, man. To, yes, we are. <laughs> we are. To keep our nose above water. Every once in a while, you go underwater and then, you know, you, hopefully you have somebody to lift you up and get that nose above water again. But it's like if you if people think you're trying to, to throw one more thing on their plate, you know, by teaching them techniques or getting some mentoring, you know, that type of thing, it's like I'm already maxed out. You know, and I call it the the bullshit factor, you know, where if you had one more piece of bullshit that comes your way, you know, that's it. I can't deal with can't it. Deal with it I have seen, you know, a three month cop walk off the tier. I have seen a 20 year cop walk off the tier because of the bullshit. They factor. just reached the tipping. They reached that point where I'm done. I got to check out. And it's crazy. The number of people that is a it is being affected by this in today's world, the L.A. world. I mean, I know so many people and whether it's me that I know that person personally, or they're a friend of a friend or whatever, it's like, Hey, so-and-so just quit. He did 10 years with, you know, Clovis PD and uh, he decided he just couldn't take it anymore. You know, he had, and good for you. Good for you for recognizing, you know, you're done. Yeah. Because if you hang in there and you tried to white knuckle the rest of your career, um, you may wind up a statistic at some point, whether it's an, an unnatural death or, you know, an early death or whatever that looks like a suicide. Um, so good for you for recognizing that you can do without the law enforcement. It's tough though, man, man, because the, these because these people made a decision to follow that career path for a reason. And what yeah. I find when I talk to these guys, much like you is I wanted to get back. I wanted to help people. I wanted to make a difference. Yeah. Right. And then they get to a point in their career where, as you've described it, the bullshit factor gets to a point where they've decided all of that, all that passion, all that drive, all that training, all of that white knuckling it up to that point. Nah, fucking I'm done. done. Like, I just don't want to do this anymore, which leads me to the question I'd be asking on the inside of my head, which is really, man, is that really what it is? You're just done or are there things that could have been done or may have been taken off your plate yes. to give you room to yeah. deal with stuff, to, to breathe, to breathe. Yeah. And so that's why I talk about this in fitness and, and all the time where, you know, people are trying to correct their path, whatever it is. And they think they need to add more onto the plate in order to do that. Like I need the, I need the, the I need the, we talk about hormones and, and nutrition and I need supplements and I need all this stuff. That may be very helpful for you. Yeah. It may be. But for what we need to do first is we need to take some shit off your plate you because the foundation solid. We got it. We got to build the foundation. You got to build the foundation. And and those things are and it. 
Those things won't change from person to person. Foundations are foundations. Absolutely. There's a lot of nuance above that when you start building the structure based on personal situations and circumstance, previous health history, professional history, all those kind of things. But yeah. again, taking things off the plate for people to breathe in your, is what you said. And, and, Start asking the right questions so that they can get to the light, right? yeah. whatever that is. Yeah. What I, I think, you know, if departments would, more departments would recognize, large departments would recognize, and and I shouldn't, I don't mean to um, throw every department in the same, you know, situation because LAPD, I understand that it's either LAPD or SO that have an amazing wellness program jumping off and uh, good for them for recognizing the need, a big department to recognize the need, Fresno PD, good wellness program. Um, when you have a, a department like Department of Corrections that has 30,000 officers, it's like- It's a big ship to turn. Man. man, is that a big ship to turn? I describe it as, as a big wheel, right? And the wheel's going to turn. And whether it's, you know, 50 cops commit suicide in a month or one mm. in, in five years, the wheel still has to turn. You know, you can't just shut it down and take a break. You can't. It's still going to turn and you could be on the wheel or you could be under the wheel, you know, and it's still I used to think the Department of Corrections or at least, you know, some of the prisons that I worked at, they can't run without me. This this prison cannot run without me. Right. Bullshit. Your shelf life after retirement is about 90 days at best. That's incredible. You know, after 27 years of of blood, sweat and tears, you know, it's like you might live three months. Well, no, no. Oh. I mean, your, your shelf life, meaning people remembering oh, you, okay. what Got you did you. in the department, like, you know, some, a, okay. some of the strives that you, you, you know, you tried to do and, and what you try to represent. Yeah. It's your, all forgotten. Your thought process. Yeah. Because the next person comes in be, next to you and, and changes everything that you just did for, you know, the last five or 10 Got years. It. So, you know, it's like, um, that in itself is difficult. So getting back to your original question, what's the answer? I don't know that there's a global answer. I think it's trying to touch people individually, you know, best we can and save the lives that we can save. And, you know, and there's one of the guys, uh, Rich Barazzi, he's a deputy director with the Guardians. He, you know, his goal is to have no suicides, you know, and, and that's that's a lofty goal. And, I, you know, that's a goal that we should be working towards. That's crazy that that's well, it's not crazy. It's just the fact that that has to be a goal. Right. In and of itself should, should just speak volumes to why aren't we putting more into this if this is our goal? Right. Like to, to prevent. Sorry. Right. To cut you off. But that's, no, that's, that's a lot. You know, and, and when when there is a suicide that happens, it's like, you know, it, it hurts so bad. And, you know, and I've had conversations with him, you know, after suicides and and, um, you know, we, we want to provide a response when we can to the institution where the suicide occurred to try to be there to support and all that kind of stuff. And when we had money, you know, the proactive side of getting out there and having conversations in the institutions before the suicides happened, you know, trying to prevent people talking about point in time and all that kind of stuff. But it hurts. It hurts when there's a suicide, you know, and, and you go, you know, OK, we lost one. But how many did we save along the way? Mm -hmm. How many people were in similar situations mm -hmm. where, you know, either the mentorship or, you know, just knowing that somebody gives a shit about them? Um, because a lot of times, especially in, in the CDCR world, it's like you you just you don't feel like an individual. You don't feel any value in you. It's like a number. Well, yeah, you're, you're nothing more than a, a, a mechanism for inmate program. Mm -hmm. You know, I have to be in this position to keep the inmate program running. You know, so who am I working for? What am I really contributing to? Exactly. You know, beyond the paycheck and it's a great paycheck and there's really good retirement. If you get to, and I want to talk about retirement for a minute, but yeah, um, it, it's a good living, but you, you know, we're, we're coming full circle here, by the way, yep. that's where we're headed. That's exactly right. That's where we're headed. You got to be able to survive 
to, you know, enjoy some of that retirement. And if, if the, um, the expected, uh, you know, um, age of, of death is before 59 and a few years ago, uh, through contracts, you know, don't get me started on our governor, but, um, they, (laughs) they just, yeah. Yeah. Me either. Yeah. God, you know, I wind up with DOJ at my house knocking (laughs) on the door, but, um, anyway, yeah. So if our expected life, if our life, life expectancy is less than 60, and then they, they just went back and they, they reformulated a few years ago, our um, retirement and these kids that are coming up in the department now, 57 and a half is the retirement age. We're not expected to make it to 60. 57 and a half, it, it was raised from 50 to 57 and a half. Do, do you think there, there might've been some, you know, some prior planning on somebody? Oh, good God. Part yes. yeah. To say, you know, think about how much money. They're, they're not expecting you to make it to retirement. Exactly right. So, you know, if the state doesn't have to pay out, if, you know, PERS, if PERS doesn't have to pay out, you know, the only people that get hurt in this are the people that spent you know, 30, 30, years, 37 years. and a half years in some cases working in in the prison. They're the ones, you know, so it's like, is that fair? Is that fair to, to give up so much of your life and give up, you know, a good portion of your life expectancy to have that, you know, be your demise, your end? Look, man, I, I you, you were saying it, it's a cultural change. Yeah. It starts from within. It has to start with the individual, right? And wanting to help and peel back those layers. And then they have to be aware that those things are happening. And that has to go upstream yeah. to start gaining respect so that they recognize this, the stigma that's attached to asking for help. And, you know, again, going through some wellness techniques to keep yourself online goes beyond the, yeah, you're just being a pussy, man. Like right. suck it up. Suck this it is up. what you signed up. Holy for. shit. That's, yeah. that's, that was the attitude for years. Yeah. That was the attitude for years. You know, Hey, buttercup, did you think it wasn't going to be difficult working inside of a prison? But here's the other part of that. And you just described it. I mean, pretty articulately. And that is maybe that is what's happening. And that culture has been changing and people are getting better. And guess what? They're stacking the deck against you. They being those that make decisions, maybe at a higher level, knowing that you can make it maybe a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. Right. And that there could be some planning around it, which means you might have to work a little bit harder as a team to get this, this information out there. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, like you said, it, it really is just about continuing the conversation. There is not like one solution, but it's about, it's about people becoming informed and becoming as passionate about it as you have. And then maybe being able to show some statistics over time that how this stuff is, is, is benefiting people aside from what you're hearing, what you've said in the moment, kind of in making these presentations, people like, yes, we need this Mm -hmm. and great. Here's the resources. So give us a call. Let's work together on this. And then phone lines are silent when they figure out the work that really has to put in, maybe be put in to actually do that. So man, if there were, if there were things that people like me or even officers, but more specifically, that's 30,000 of them, but I don't know what the population of California is now, but it's massive. And I'm just talking about California population of San Jose is whatever. If there were people like me, civilians that could maybe that wanted to try and make a difference that wanted to contribute Mm -hmm. uh, to make these programs happen and make them better. Where would we even start, man? You know, you can, you can reach out to organizations that support, you know, these types of programs like California Correctional Supervisors Organization. Um, there's stuff all over, uh, you know, Facebook that are, you know, wellness type okay. programs. 
Um, and and I, I, I'm not armed with any specific information That's, right now. Maybe after the fact, we can post something. Yeah, totally. But yeah. Uh, at, at the end of the day, there are some really awesome groups out there that are trying to do good things. Um, Guardians is one of them. Uh, we're actually in the process. Uh, of, we were in the process of trying to attach to a, a foundation so that we can, you know, receive um, donations. Uh, like I said, we were being funded by an organization. That organization started a foundation. And that was part of what we were going to do moving forward was try to um, get individuals, corporations, businesses to um, start to donate so that we can raise the funds. If every time we go out and we do a training and what, what, what the thought process was, and, and this is what worked with CCPOA to a certain okay. degree, was you uh, send out mass flyers to the corrections officers that live in a certain region All right. and mailers out. We have their address, that type of thing. And it says, Hey, come listen to this presentation It's about employee wellness. And we want to talk to you, have a conversation, open conversation. Um, and, and you put some things on there, like a warning sign. If you don't come, you know, you, you may only live till 60, something that gets their attention. Most of the time, which wasn't put in their original no, flyers it about it wasn't in the original the flyer. Now yeah. we're going to tell you about it. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, uh, sometimes the, the, those flyers reach the right hand. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they, they wind up in the trash can, uh, because of family members, you know, that, that collect the mail that day or whatever. Um, but at the end of the day, if, if just a few people show up for the presentation, it would be done regionally. And there's a cost to that. And we expected the cost to be somewhere around $10,000 with, you know, the traveling of the mentors and, you know, putting them in a hotel room. And, and most hotels will let you, you know, rent out a conference room for, right. you know, eight hours, 350 bucks, you know. So it, when we projected the cost, it was about $10,000 each event. And that was used, going to be used to educate, not only educate the officers themselves, but also allow the family to come in. Because the family, oh, wow. if the family's not aware of what that officer is going through, oftentimes, if we talk about it and we educate the family, uh, who better to educate, you know, what crisis looks like or what um, high risk behavior is? Because the spouses will say, you well, I saw changes. And I'm like, oh, you saw changes. You know, what did those changes look like? Well, you know, he never did that before. Or, you know, she would come home pissed off every day or um, there was more drinking than there's ever been before. What'd you do about it? You know, well, I didn't do anything. I mean, I thought that was just part of it, you know, or um, I didn't know who I could talk to. It becomes normalized. It becomes normalized. I didn't know who to reach out to, you know, um, so-and-so is becoming more violent. You know, when they come home, they're, they're, uh, you they're know, angry. Not, not, they're angry, not yeah. necessarily violent isn't domestic violence. That's not what I'm referring to, but uh, just angry like people. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, how do you deal with that? Um, so it's, it's knowing where the resources are at. And we were trying to push that out and get it out there so that there were resources out there. Uh, unfortunately, it's difficult to do without funding. And um, I want to send, I want to give a shout out to my team though, uh, because they have continued to work as much as they can. And just like I've been doing, uh, take the brunt of the financial, you know, um, uh, hit on themselves. So I had a contract with CCSO. I was under contract for a certain number of hours and a certain hourly wage yeah. for 10 months. i I did not submit an invoice to be paid uh, by CCSO. I did it for free and wow. uh, they did reimburse travel and stuff like that. But as far as my contract for my hourly wage for 10 months, I didn't submit that because I wanted the program to stay viable. I wanted to make sure that I could give back to a degree where um, the program grew um, more financing came in. Um, unfortunately, that didn't happen. And uh, we find ourselves in a situation now where um, I don't regret not taking a paycheck, you know, but at the end of the day, it wasn't about pay to begin with. It's about helping people. And um, so it was simple for me to to be able to uh, have that mindset. But at the end of the day, um, I'm retired 
and I have um, certain financial goals that, you know, I want to try to meet you know, for my so, family and so much you can do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I have to, um, try to focus on that as well. As you know, I own a firearms business and a firearms training business, yep. you know, tactical firearms instructor for years and being on, you know, our, our SWAT team, that type of stuff. I teach a lot of CCW classes and, uh, one of my other passions, um, especially we've all heard the term, right. Um, when it comes to a bad guy with a gun, who handles that? Right. A good guy with a gun. Exactly. You know what I mean? Whether it's a cop or whether it's a CCW permit holder or whatever that looks like. I'm a Second Amendment guy. I know you are, too. At one thousand percent. So at the end of the day, you know, if I'm out there pushing my CCW classes and, you know, trying to do the best I can do to train people and make them proficient. Um, and, you know, then maybe one day I, I hope that none of the people that I train are ever in a, you know, in a active shooter type situation, but if they are, but if they are, you can save a lot of lives. We all know first responder. Absolutely. Take care of business. And I tell them all, you don't have an obligation to respond as a first responder, but if you're proficient, if you're emotionally fit, if you're, you know, in, in, in a good place mentally and you can respond, dispatch the bad guy, you can save a lot of lives. The, the whole purpose of an active shooter in their life is to commit mass murder, kill as many people as they can. And you know, what was crazy was, um, Years for years, uh, active shooters used to take their own lives. Yeah. You not know? anymore. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be the, that way anymore. You know? I, yeah. Cause they get all, they get put up and uh, they're, they're in the public spotlight yeah, after that. Exactly. They, have an, they have a different agenda now. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy, but yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're doing all these things to, to continue to try to get back to the community. There's Absolutely. also, again, I mean, you're, you live in California. It's not cheap to live here. You know, there's all, all those things in terms of financial goals and, and, you know, what you're, you're doing for your family, but also for the community in terms of the law enforcement community and, you know, their mental health and, and, and wellness and keeping the, prov- the, the profession viable, yes. both for the officers and for us, the public, you know, um, we will, we'll, we'll post some stuff in the show notes for them. Um, but if they want to find out more about, uh, like the guardians program, what's the, where do they go to find out specifically about that? Is that like guardians.com? Like what, you know, what we had a, uh, we had a, a Facebook page up and okay. Instagram and all that kind of stuff. But um, when we lost the funding, hmm. you know, it was one of those things where we could only do so much. Right. And unfortunately you can't handle, you know, um, a lot of people reaching out. We want to be there, but at the end of the day, we, we have to, you know, have the finances to be there too. So I totally um, get it. So the Facebook was taken down, the Instagram was taken down. But um, if you go to uh, guardians at, um, CCSF, CCSFnet.org. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll give you a card and make sure that you have information, yep. you know, so you could post it moving forward. Uh, that's one way to get a hold of us. And, um, that's, that's probably the best way actually. So I was just thinking, you know, like if you're an officer and, or if you're in some way involved with the wellness program at your department or your agency, and you're looking for resources or whatever, at least go take a look, right. And, Absolutely. and, and reach out because while you're doing things out of pocket and, and trying to make a, a difference in your own way and the way that you can now, there's going to be resources there that they can try and take advantage or at least push upstream or even downstream to people that need help right now, like a phone call looking for a mentor or something like that to, to help them out. Right. Right. I mean, and that's again, to help somebody with that moment in time where things look really, really dark and they're trying to get to the other side. Absolutely. Rick, man, I, I appreciate you coming down. I mean, this, this is a passionate topic of mine. Uh, we had not had anybody in here from the corrections perspective. Um, 
you know, some law enforcement, some, some firefighters, um, and some other people from the military. And I, again, one of the things that was really important for me is that you were able to get your message out this way. Um, I appreciate you telling your story and, and sharing the time with me and making the journey here to do that. Um, and if there's anything I can do to somehow help beyond kind of getting the message out, man, you got a believer in me, dude. I so, appreciate that. So yeah. Hit me up. I think just that networking and, and, uh, I know you're, you're connected well with, um, mm-hmm. people that are moving in the same direction and, you know, making sure that, uh, that we have the ability to connect with those type of people, you know, so we could partner at some level, you know, if, if people, even if people aren't aware of heart math and guardians can only do so much, but right. other people have a, you know, a, a financial stronghold or, you know, can, um, can function at a higher level than guardians can at this point because of finances showing them what the heart math looks like and um, getting them, you know, to go through putting through some of their people through the uh, building personal resiliency program. So they can see what that looks like getting these techniques out there. You know, that's important stuff. You know what, man, I, this goes way beyond law enforcement as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I mean, I mean, you look around a society right now, go back to your active shooters and things like that. I mean, these are people that need this kind of help. Yes. Right. I mean, that's a huge, huge problem in our society. Obviously it's, it's rearing its ugly head, unfortunately, almost on a daily basis now. Um, and these, these are, these are techniques that everybody could, could, could benefit from, but, um, yeah. Uh, by the way, so big plug to the overwatch collective, our guys right up here in half moon Bay. These are guys that are these are your guys and we're going to get you guys connected after this too. They're, That's awesome. They, they are doing some really great stuff in the, in the same realm. So anyway, like I said, Rick, thanks for joining me today. Oh, thank you, brother. I appreciate your time and, and let me come on. Likewise. All right, brother. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into this episode of iron sights. If you enjoyed our conversation, you can support our mission by hitting the subscribe button, leaving a review and sharing the podcast with a friend. I'll see you on the next episode.